everybody. Welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. Today, I'm very pleased to have two guests in the studio. We have Captain Charles McVeigh, the legendary captain of the Seawolf, along with our good friend Pete Neal here in the podcast studio. Gentlemen, how are you? Well, we wish you all a happy new year. I had a wonderful uh, holiday season and happy to be here. And I'm glad he's here, too. This fulfills a long time where I've wanted to have Charlie come on to this show specifically for the purpose of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, exactly. We, we've been talking about this for, excuse me, we've been talking about this for a long time and um, just so great to have you here. And we just had a great lunch just prior to the podcast. So that was good. And um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about, um, you know, Charlie's career. We're going to talk, maybe sh- share some stories um, and, uh, and we'll be happy to take questions and comments from the audience. So if you are listening or watching on YouTube or on Facebook, you could just type in your questions or comments. We'll see them here on the screen and we'll get you involved in this. So, um, gosh, I mean, where, Pete, where do you want to start with this? <laughs> that's a good, now that I'm on the spot, that's a good question <laughs> yeah. to ask. Charlie, thanks for coming. You're, Thank you. You're you're backing me up again, <laughs> as you have so many times. Um, you, to me, represent a very particular position for a topic that John and I have talked about on a number of podcasts, and that is um, in the context of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that there is a cost to that part of the foundation of this country, the United States. It's in the Constitution for a reason. But there is a cost attached to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that cost comes in the form of the people who have served this country unselfishly. And I had a perspective of this from my time in the Navy and subsequent activities where my mission was do the best I can to support the concept of pursuing one's life with liberty in the pursuit of happiness. Now, that's not exactly the way it's written in the Constitution. Well, it's actually the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, <laughs> Declaration of Independence. Close. Yes. And don't forget, I come I'm, – I'm the first – American born in my family. Mm-hmm. Okay, my parents came from Canada, uh, well, England via Canada. So I was the first one born in Syracuse, New York, moved to Rhode Island. And I felt something was owed uh, for this opportunity that I had to live in this country. So I came to. Um, the military was my first way of giving back for the education that I had just received in elementary school and uh, high school, uh, falling short of college. But I then, in that nine-year period, uh, I was an enlisted guy, and I saw it from one perspective. I was working with the enlisted crew members of various submarines. And I focus on submarines because of a eureka moment in my life where I could have been permanent shore duty 
I didn't have to go to sea. And this was in the middle of the Vietnam War. So I avoided going in-country to Vietnam uh, by joining the Navy. And um, I was thankful for that. I also, in that first year or two, found out that my job code could ride submarines. And I did that. So that was the really eureka moment. It's on the other podcast, John. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you, the eureka moment podcast. I talk about it at length, as well as the last jar of peanut butter. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh, that that story. Yeah. There's a dozen stories here, but I was so impacted by one individual on every boat I rode, and that was the captain of the submarine. He had the responsibility for all of us idiots in our own concealed environment. And, Charlie, I got to tell you, you, I've listened to you on numerous occasions, and you've always said something very profound. And one of them you said to me about four or five years ago, we were sitting and having lunch, and you said, where do we find these guys? And that has rung true for me for a long time because there is a special quality of the people who rode submarines. And they worked for you. I, in my position as listed man, worked for the CO, commanding officer of the submarine. That was the mission at hand. So bringing us back around to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that is the cost of those three things is our servicemen. Coupled with that, I jump right into submarines because, as I pointed out to John just this morning, we were off the face of the earth entirely. <laughs> we were submerged. And there were so many factors when you don't have the planetary features, air, sunlight, Mm -hmm. you're off the face of the earth entirely. I explained to you just a short time ago. You're no longer on a 24-hour clock. You're on an 18-hour clock Mm -hmm. because that's what the work environment was. You slept for six hours. You worked for six hours. You relaxed for six hours. That was your your 18-hour day. And it was orchestrated by the commanding officer. Well, I've actually changed it now to, uh, you know, they do eight on. <laughs> that's a long so, damn time to be on watch. And that's working out pretty well also. But um, uh, it was no question that being at sea on a submarine was a unique experience. And you meet unique people who do just unbelievable things and make terrific sacrifices um, emotionally and mentally. Just to uh, hold up the nation, and you know, I don't—I didn't believe it until I got involved with it, and I, um, you know, I—I I was fortunate. I didn't have any submarine vision in my life, and it, it sort of happened. Um, but once you get involved with a submarine, you never want to be anywhere else. It's—it's uh, it's unbelievable the attachment that you have for crew members who are willing to lay their lives down, literally. 
and it's built on this issue of trust. Uh, how do you go to sleep at night if you don't trust the, the person, whether a man or a woman, to turn the right valve in the right direction at the right time? And if you can't trust them to do that, you're not going to get much sleep. And it very quickly becomes evident that the training on a crew of a submarine exceeds anything you could even anticipate. And uh, when I saw the difference between training in a submarine force and training in the civilian world, and I ran two companies after I got out of the Navy, um, it was disarming to see how um, dedicated we were and how undedicated a lot of other people aren't. And... um, you know, people get in the Navy, military for different reasons. But I think as I talk to my crew members now, the difference for them was that we relied on each other. We really did. I mean, I know as a captain, I relied on the crew, and they felt that same way, that uh, they relied on me. I had to do my job. The cook had to do his job. The corpsman had to do his job. Uh, the chief of the boat certainly had to do his job. Your job is well-defined, and you know that you have to produce at a very high level in order to support the ship, not only the safety of the ship, but the mission of the ship. And so I, I just feel blessed to have gotten involved with submarines. And it was, uh, it was by happenstance. I had no... No military in my background, no Navy in my background. And people said, well, how did you get in a submarine? Well, in the days that I was involved, you didn't have to declare whether you were going to go surface ship or submarine until after nuclear power training. Uh, at the end of that, I looked around and said, you know, all my best buddies are going in submarines. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm so happy that I did it because... Uh, Lifelong friends, uh, crew members that I still are in contact with weekly, some daily, and uh, so it's it's hard to describe that. We'll get into more of the detail of that, but the uh, interdependence and trust, we'll talk a lot about trust that you have with everybody around you on a ship, a submarine, it's hard to define. How many it's, people were on your crew? Uh, the ships were designed for between 105 and 120. Uh, Seawolf, because it was stretched, we had about 125 on deployment. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's an interesting question because it leads to a lot of other things. You know, by the time you get to be a commanding officer, you know how to shoot a torpedo. You know how to fix a reactor. You know how to run a reactor. You know how to navigate submerged. But every one of those individuals that is your crew member is a different individual, and they all bring such special talents and problems (laughs) and sometimes dump them in your lap. Mm -hmm. And so – and there was no no real training for that. Uh, And just as you see in your job today, uh, what kind of training do supervisors really get on how to handle – People, I mean, Rickover was famous at telling me uh, I often had issues with the reactor that needed 
more manpower, I thought. And I would call Admiral Rickover and say, tell him what was going on. He'd say, well, how can I help? I'd say, well, if you would send me six more nuclear-trained machinists, I, I'd be okay. And it'd be silence. And he would say, you are so dumb. He said, don't you know people are problems? The best thing I can do is take six people away from you, and you'll probably be done tomorrow. <laughs> Click. <laughs> and, you know, I was tired, angry, stunned. But he was right. If he'd send me six people the next day, it would take me six months to train them. You'd have to get their families settled, get the wives happy with a new butcher and baker and pastor. And um, so he was right. But the way he delivered the message was uh, pretty unique. And I happen to have been fortunate to spend a fair amount of time around Rickover. And people do say, what was it like to be around Admiral Rickover? I said, well, it was like making love to a porcupine. You did it very carefully. <laughs> it was just uh, – but I learned so many things from him, not only about people, but uh, – and in some cases, he could be very gentle. In some cases, he had a sense of humor. But if it had to do with reactor safety, there was no issue. You had to follow the rules explicitly. And um, he did tell me as I was leaving his office to go to command a Seawolf, calling back in the office, he said, you know, Seawolf is a problem. It's old. It's going to be the oldest commission ship. You're going to have a lot of problems. I'm not going to judge you on the number of problems you have, but I'm going to judge you on how you handle them. But I will tell you, if you have a reactor problem that you don't tell me about, I'll kill you. Yes. <laughs> That's the, Admiral that, was very clear. That was the Admiral. That was <laughs> Please excuse me. I, I left to go off to, to Sewell. And um, th that whole experience being for three months, never more than 40 feet away from Admiral Rickover was a unique, intense experience, which, you know, has burned into my skull. I, uh, the first week I was there, we, had, we were in little cubes. We had books, and Friday afternoon I looked up from my desk, and there was Admiral Rickover standing directly in front of me. He said, McVeigh, you didn't do very well in that quiz, that chemistry quiz today. I said, no, sir, I didn't. He said, why not? He said, well, I probably didn't study enough. He said, no, that's not the reason. He said, you're dumb. It's because you're dumb. Here I am at the pinnacle of my career, and he says, you're dumb. <laughs> and he stepped back and he said, you know, I think you're so dumb that if you had a flat tire, you would let the, the air out of the other three tires just to level the load. And he walked out. <laughs> Here I am on Friday afternoon, week one of school. I didn't figure there was any way I was going to make it through that experience, but he taught me so much, um, maybe not in a way that uh, you would consider gentle or kind, but they were burned into your skull by the time you got done. And uh, there was no question reactor safety was absolutely the uppermost important thing above the mission, uh, above everything, reactor safety and so we spent a lot of time on that. And, uh, that was his pet thing. Because, because it was a field of study, I was very comfortable doing that. And so, well, I'd imagine on some of your missions, you probably had to, you know, on the fly, make adjustments to, 
to the reactor to make sure it was performing at, at peak levels. And maybe sometimes things maybe didn't go exactly as planned. That happened both in port and on a mission. And uh, I, I came back from a mission and, and actually had to go, go talk to Rick over about it and how things had gone and how the reactor had gone. And I said, you know, when this came up, there was no procedure in your manual about how to handle that, that particular problem. And he looked at me and said, McVeigh, you're absolutely right, but you missed the point. We give you a lot of book training. We give you a lot of practical training. We give you a lot of real-life experience training. But at the end, I want you to be able to fall back on your common sense and your basic knowledge that we've imputed to you to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, there's stories about when Admiral Rickover got relieved, his relief was Admiral McKee. McKee came in Monday morning and said, in his dress blues and said, Admiral Rickover, I'm ready to relieve you. Rickover said, get out of here. <laughs> so every day that week, mm-hmm. and they all had a week to turn over. And finally, Friday morning, Admiral McKee said, Admiral Rickover, I'm ready to leave you, and we only have another 24 hours. Rickover said, get out of here, and I'll see you at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, Saturday morning. So Admiral McKee comes into Rickover's office. Rickover's shoveling final books into cardboard boxes, and Admiral McKee says, Admiral Rickover, I'm ready to relieve you. Admiral Rickover looked at him and said, in 40 minutes, I'm walking out of this door. I'm never going to talk to you. I'm never going to write to you. You'll never hear from me again. Now get out of here. Admiral McKee was stunned. Here's 40 years of nuclear power experience walking out on me without one thing to tell me. And I saw Admiral McKee about six weeks, six months later, and he said, you know, I suddenly realized that what Rickover was really telling me was, I know you're Rickover trained. I've seen you perform under Rickover's environment, and I trust you. You can do the job. Mm-hmm. And and we saw that time and time again, that if um, this, this word trust is going to come up a lot in this discussion because uh, it was imperative that we trusted each other, not only with our crew, but between our seniors and our juniors. We trusted each other with our lives. And it's because we knew of the training we'd gone through and the fact that our common sense coefficient was up to snuff. Uh, and very reassuring to go to sea for 90 days and never really be told, well, that's just, this is one of Pete's favorite stories, but we're getting ready to go on mission one on Seawolf. And you normally get an operational order that tells you what you're going to do how you're going to do it, you know, how long you're going to be on, here's the navigational things to be looking out for, or here's the route you're going to take. I didn't have an op order six weeks before. It's a true story. He didn't have, he so didn't I called the Commodore. I said, um, I don't have an op order yet. How can we really get ready? He said, well, I meant to talk to you about that. Uh, the senior submarine officer in the Pacific wants to talk to you about your op order. He's flying to San Francisco to talk to you. So we're in a room that about the size of this room, and there's myself and the exec and the engineer and a supply officer and a navigator. We're on one side of the table. 
On the other side of the table is my, my commodore, a lieutenant from the admiral's staff, and the admiral. And um, the admiral says, it's nice to meet you, Charlie. I'd never met you before. Lieutenant, start reading the outporter. So he's on his feet, and he reads page by page. My eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And at the end, the admiral turns to everybody and says, what do you think of the outporter? And there's some head nodding with some hesitation. So the admiral says, okay, everybody out of the room except McVeigh. So they all left, and there I am. This admiral I've never met across the he looks at me, Charlie, I've read this op order. I don't know how you're going to do it. So I'm thinking, here's the senior submarine guy in the Pacific, doesn't know how I'm going to do this. So he looked at me and said, can you do it? And I said, Admiral, we've trained in every environmental condition that we can anticipate. We're ready to go. He said, you look me in the eye and say you can do it. So I looked him in the eye and said, Admiral, we can do it. And he just looked at me and said, Charlie, I believe you. He opened the op order, he signed it, and he got up and went to the door, turned around and he said, good luck, I'll see you in three months. By that time, my uniform was a different color. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> damp. It's this issue of trust that keeps coming up and up in the submarine force. How do we trust people to go away and do the nation's bidding without Hourly guidance. I mean, you don't trust your kids to go out and just play in the street. And for literally for three months. You're on your own. They trusted me. Yeah. And they trusted the fact that I trusted the crew. So it's, 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 a, it's a personal experience that few, few of us get to experience. Um, Rick Over was a unique guy, though. I mean, he he had an entirely different way of thinking. And I, I only met the guy once. He had a uh, thing where he went on board every nuke boat at one point in time or another. He'd come on and go to sea just to evaluate. But he'd make a point of talking to everybody he could at one point in time or another. I was a writer. I had not ship's company. But he saw me in the hallway, and he says, I haven't talked to you yet. I said, no, sir, you haven't. He says, come with me. So into the CO state room we went. I'm scared to death. I've never talked to Rick over. I know who he is, but I'm scared to death, right? He says, why are you on my submarine? And I looked at him, and I said, $75 extra a month. He says, What? I says, I get sea pay for being at sea on a submarine. It's $75 a month. He says, the best answer I've heard all day. You're dismissed. And that was my only exposure to him. That's an important point, though, that uh, as you watched people either be accepted by Admiral Rickover or rejected by Admiral Rickover, it was the issue of telling the truth in the fewest number of words. Of, uh, <laughs> Don't occupy uh, his time. Yeah, uh, He was an amazing guy. And uh, when he rode sea trials on the ship I was exec on, Parchi came to ride sea trials. And, you know, you submerge a ship with a new crew, new ship, first time you've ever done that. And you're getting ready to run drills. And uh, 
So I'm in the control room, and the captain's back in the engineering spaces, and the drills aren't starting, aren't starting, aren't starting, and everybody's getting antsy. So I went back to the engine room and stuck my head maneuvering and said, looked at the captain and said, why aren't we doing the drills yet? And the captain said, well, Admiral Rickover's talking to one of our sailors. Well, Admiral Rickover's talking to a third-class electrician mate. <laughs> He had found out this electrician mate was a bachelor in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and he wanted to know about that sailor's sex life. And so he's quizzing this sailor on his dating habits in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Completely floored everybody. And, and here we have the brand new ship at its deepest depth, getting ready to go at full speed. And Admiral Rickover's asking about the sailor's dating habits. It was just uh, things like that came up over and over again, that his ability to keep you off balance and prepared for anything was one of the basics for our training. I um, When we did sea trails on Tenosa, uh, which was right after Thresher sank, Admiral Rickover invited the governor of New Hampshire to come, too. He wanted to show him how safe these submarines were. So they... Two big guys, the Admiral Rickover and the governor arrive and get the ship submerged and it's time to run drills. Admiral Rickover looks at the engineer and says, uh, who's the most recently reported officer on board? And engineer says, well, Sam is. And Admiral Rickover says, Governor, I'm going to show you how safe these plants are. We're going to take the newest officer on board and we're going to let him run the drills. So they got... Sam up out of bed. This poor guy was terrified. I mean, he couldn't even hold the speaker. Microphone was like a snake in his mouth. So reactor scram. Well, the, the crew recovered the plant. And Recover just looked at the governor and said, see, anybody can do this. And it was there to make a point. And, but Sam never forgot that moment forever was burned into his head. So, I mean, I can go to all Rickover stories a lot because I, I really I respect the guy like my parents. And uh, he taught me lessons about engineering and about life and about people that it'd be hard to explain rationally outside the context of being in a submarine. Well, it sounds like he's trying to read the character of the man, you know, because it's it, to determine whether there is a level of trust that can be had because you can't train for every possible scenario. You've no, got to make sure you have the right kinds of guys on board that can make the critical decisions. I think that's it, a key fact. It, it's true. I mean, it, uh, we had a, we were import and we did something and it didn't turn out right. And so Rick over called me and said, why were you doing that? And I said, well, what we did was to try and follow the instructions but, in fact, your manual does not address that particular situation. Your manual did not tell us not to do that. And there was silence. Said McVeigh, he said, you're so dumb. He said, do you expect me to write a manual for everything you shouldn't do in this life? Do you want me to write a manual? Yeah, I shall not let an elephant on your submarine. He said, use your common sense. Exactly. And, and he wanted you to fall back on that, but he wanted to know that it was well-founded 
in both science and responsibility. And uh, it kept coming up over and over again that uh, that he really did want you to be responsible, but he wanted it to be measured responsibility. Because people would ask him, you know, why is it we have to follow all these procedures? And he told me when I asked him, I said, one of my guys wants to know why do we have to do it that way, your way? He said, well, it's a proven way. We know it's safe. It's been done over and over again. And he said, to give you an example, he said, at the end of a penicillin production line, you do not want a lot of ingenuity. Mm -hmm. And that has stuck with me forever. You know, once you know something works and it's safe, keep doing it. Because I know in the engineering environment Pete and I have worked in, subsequently, people always want to have a good idea and they want their good idea infused even if it's the last minute. And so I know I finally set up a good idea cutoff date on a project. So after the state, no more good ideas, guys. We're going to finish it and document it. <coughs> and the good idea cutoff date is real. So I, but I learned that from Rickover. So... You know, the thing, the other thing that permeates this is Rickover's audience, the people that made it into submarines, made it through all those steps that you go through because he knew the caliber of the people theoretically that was coming into his order, into his command. So um, I think it... It was a, del- a deck of cards that he knew very well. And I saw that. I had the fortunate thing of people question this, but I wrote a number of different submarines. The likeness of one boat to another to another was very evident in the quality of the people that were on board that I was getting to work with. Um, one boat in particular... I used to volunteer for sonar watches just to keep myself occupied. And they wanted to make me sonar supervisor. I said, I'm not even qualified in submarines. And they said, no, but you've been there. You've done it. You've done the mission. We know that you know how to handle this situation. So I I said, yeah, but the technicality is you've got to be qualified in submarines first. And they said, no, you can get the performance. So I was actually... I had a watch of my own. I had four, five guys working with me to, in the sonar shack for that period of time just because I knew the mission at hand in that environment. And I think Rickover had that in the back of his mind too. Uh, it goes back to that trust thing. Uh, yeah. People developed a trust in you to do that job. And that's uh, – we encourage people to do that, to get to a position of trust. Yeah. For their own self feeling of self worth, and I, I, um, I, I guess one of the words that I key on a lot is reliance. We came to rely on each other, and, and the crew relied on me to do my job to the best of my ability, and I relied on them to do their job, and that that mutual reliance permeates the whole situation. Um, I mean, there's some 
that and don't shoot the messenger ever. <laughs> Young men would come up with problems. I would deflect some some sailor. I'd meet him in a passageway and he'd say, Captain, the, this pump is not working right. I'd say, well, have you talked to your division officer or your leading petty officer? He said, no, sir. I said, well, I don't want to talk to you about it. I want you to talk to your leading petty officer, your division officer, the engineer, the exec. It's not that I don't believe you got a problem, but I don't want to cut those their experience out of the process. Mm-hmm. I said, I may know the answer. I probably don't. But it's not fair for you and me to cut out the 35 years of submarine experience that's represented by your leading petty officer, chief petty officer, division officer, you're the and, and so people come to respect that after a while. I was first put off at it, but that's a very submarine-oriented deal. My first captain would not talk to me about anything other than, you know, what was for dinner. If I came up, I was an engineering department. If I said the Framus doesn't look right or sound right, it said talk to the engineer. I don't want to talk to you about it. And I was really put off by that. But I came to recognize that it was a real strength because uh, each one of these fellows had more experience. Every step of the way, yeah. And a submarine is so complicated that there's no way that you can learn to be proficient in all aspects of it. Mm. I, um, as a matter of fact, I've had guys that left my submarine, became Navy doctors, and when I called them in med school, I said, How, how's it going to med school? I said, how does it compare? I said, after a submarine, the human body is easy. <laughs> I said, you know, this is like a submarine. It's got valves. It's got pipes. It's got electrical signal. I, I got this med school knocked, he said, because you taught me how a submarine operated. Yeah. So it, it, it was um, – That's an amazing parallel, Charlie. <laughs> i just just now thinking about it. Tammy's right. But because we relied on everybody to tell the truth – and to put their most into the answer and the solution. Um, and we could have an electrical problem, and the machinist would say, you know, my mother taught me how to do that when I was a kid, and the machinist mate would help the electrician's mate, and we'd, we'd solve that thing. And um, and we'd do it together. As a matter of fact, when I left Seawolf in my farewell speech, I said to the crew, I said, you know, what we've done for the country and for our Navy is very important. But what the most important thing is not what we did, where we did it, or how we did it. The most important thing is that we did it together. And um, that glue is the thing that makes it submarining so different. Yeah. Yeah. It's very unique. I, I There's only one thing that ever came close in my life subsequent to that where the manpower was that good. And that's when I was dealing with fixed-wing aviation. The uh, engine mechanics, they're on a par with submarine sailors, in my opinion. And I think they went through some routines. Uh, I, I mean, aircraft's out of service. You know, engines are down. And they went through some Herculean efforts the motivation was keep the people safe. 
And it's the same thing on the boat. Just keep us safe. You know, it's the same thing. It's the same central thing. So coming back to why I was so important about this podcast is this country needs to be kept safe. And we're counting on each other to do that part of the job, in my opinion. And as I said, Charlie's on a very good position to retrospectively look back at what it took to do that. I've been blessed. It's not uh, – I mean I have doctors now in San Diego who have read that book and never knew me before. But they now buy piles of books and they hand them out to their patients. They said, you know, I've had to make life and death decisions in the OR or the ER that saves lives or doesn't. But he said, I can't imagine the responsibility that you have as a commanding officer of a submarine. I said, it's not just me. It's the chief of the watch. It's the navigator. It's lower level Louie. They all can make decisions that can uh, be life-changing this, and life-threatening. Yeah, this this is a great tangent. Um, I'm going to go off in a different direction here for a second. Okay. In a previous podcast, we talked about family grams. Yeah, I remember that. And one of the stories I told was about the wives of the wardroom of this one submarine got together and sent to the boat a family gram. That said, to the wardroom of the USS Neverfish, from the wives of the USS Neverfish, one of us is pregnant. All right. So I, the humor of the story was, you know, beyond reproach. I also told them about the one we sent to one of our shipmates and told them the parts on the motorcycle are in order. You know, we were supposed to be taking care of his bike. But here's a question for you, Charlie. I can tell a dozen other stories about family grams, but there were family grams that came to the radio shack, you know, on the open broadcast. At the tail end of the message traffic, we'd get family grams. But the radio men of the watch would take those family grams to the CO first for him to screen them before he'd pass them along. Mm. And I told you at the time, the reason for that is the CEO may not want that crewman to be affected by what that family gram says. For example, if somebody in his family had passed away, that might be troublesome. How did you handle that situation? That kind of information wouldn't normally come in a family gram. It was one of the toughest times I had at sea where we – Information which has bad news in it comes encrypted so that only the captain can break it. And right. so a radio man would come to me and say, Captain, there's a message for you. So I have to get on the radio and do the appropriate procedures. And I would literally have to type to get the message. And in this particular case, um, it started with baby is born, mother and baby doing fine. Go wake the young man up. Terrific. He goes on watch. Everybody's handing out cigars. And 72 hours later, you get a message. I'm down there. It says, baby's not doing so well. 96-hour baby passed away. 
So here you are, six weeks from getting him home. Yeah. And in this particular case, the mother, the wife dissolved. My wife ran the funeral for this infant. Um, and the crew picked this guy up and carried him for the next six weeks because we could not go whistle up an aircraft carrier. Um, so we were going to be submerged without communications for outbound for another six weeks. And the crew would carry these guys. I mean, they would, um, you know, with submergence, we found that extroverts became more extroverted, introverts became more introverted. And yet the crew had this feedback system that the guys who were getting quieter, the crew would pick up. And the guys who were getting too boisterous, the crew would sit on them. Mm. And, and there was never any um, message from on high. Or the captain said, get that guy calmed down. Or uh, it, it just happened because we were so interdependent. I um, uh, But that... That was one of the hardest things I ever did was to have to call this young man up to my stateroom. And, of course, my stateroom is the size of a telephone booth on steroids maybe. But it, it, um, Everything's uh, compact on a boat. And, <laughs> Everything. and tell him that his, his baby had passed away. I, uh, so it, it, uh, the other indication of why the question goes up, where we get these people, because we had left, just left San Francisco three days out. We're still running drills, ran a fire drill, sailor ran through a hatch, tripped, fell, broke his leg, obviously. And um, we had a doctor on board, so we picked this sailor up, picked him up, took him to the wardroom, laid him out on his table, and the uh, doctor looked at it and said, it's broken, no question. I said, well, can we fix that? He said, we don't have an x-ray machine on board. I said, I can try to set up, but it's just going to be by feel. I, I can't see what I'm doing. So I looked at the young man. I said, look, we're only three days out. I'll turn around. We'll go back to Alameda Naval Hospital, and we'll get that leg taken care of. And he looked at me and said, no, Captain, I don't want to do that. He said, you know, what we do, we can only do during certain times of the year. We'd been training for a year, and if you turn around, it's going to take a week or 10 days out of the mission, and I don't want that to happen. So I want to go with you. I said, Doc, do your best. Well, they made a plaster monument out of this guy's leg, and we actually put a torpedo in a tube, and we made a nest in one of the torpedo skids, which is a where the torpedo rests when it's in the torpedo room, inside the submarine. Yep. So we made this nest for him. And then I set up a watch bill, and during the day, we'd have somebody go down, play cards with him. We figured out how to show movies, how to get him to the bathroom, how to feed him. And so there was somebody with him every two hours. And it wasn't one of these things that was arduous, but to start with, we set up a watch bill to make sure that responsibility got fulfilled. So this kid went through two and a half months on his back in a torpedo room. We came back, pulled into San Francisco Bay. I radioed in for an ambulance to meet us, and they did. And they took him to Oak Knoll 
Naval Hospital, which was in Oakland, California. I said, Doc, you go with them. And when you get there, call me. About three hours later, the doctor called me and said, Captain, I, I tried, but I didn't do a good job. We're going to have to break his leg and start all over. Oh, no. I said, well, you're not doing that till I get there. And I said, I, gotta t- I have to take the ship into Alameda. Then I got to take it to Mirror Island. So schedule that surgery for tomorrow morning, and I'll be down there. So I sat with him. I held this young man's hand while I broke his leg, and we started all over again. Um, but he's now a, uh, a retired police officer on the East Coast. I just got a family gram from him, text message from him yesterday. His family had a great Christmas. So. Yeah. Good. I only experienced the entire time, <laughs> all the night runs I made, I only experienced one <laughs> medevac. Me. And that was... Uh, South China Sea, we had a guy that <coughs> came down with something, and so we had to get him off the boat and found out there was a carrier nearby, so they said they'd send a helicopter over, and we rendezvoused and took him off the boat. But uh, yeah. <coughs> There's a lot of places we don't have that luxury. Yeah. We talk a lot about trust as being so critical, you know, up, up line, down line, you know, throughout the whole crew. Is there ever been a case that maybe an example you can share where there might have been a breakdown in trust, but then you were able to kind of recover the situation? <clears throat> that might be a little touchy, maybe. I don't know if I'm crossing. I've heard of other I'm trying to think of when it would have taken place in my time. I can't think of a single solitary example. Wow, I mean that's you must have had a fabulous crew then. We always did. Yeah, that's that, awesome. That's that's my point here is yeah. that this is an amazing thing. It's without comparison. I am. Um, got me stuck. I guess the closest thing I can come to that is um, the first engineer on Seawolf was scheduled to be relieved on time and. And so Admiral Rickover called me. He said, <clears throat> said McVane, he always calls us by our last name, never by captain, never with oh, McVane. He said, I know that's a Sea Wolf is a tough boat. I'm going to handpick the incoming engineer. Admiral, thank you very much. So this fellow arrived, and um, I, I looked at his record. It was impeccable. The guy had... Wonderful grades. Academically, he was very... But Seawolf was a tough boat. And it was a one-of-a-kind, unique electric plant. Short in the story, it didn't work out. The engineer just could not engage a full understanding of how when you turn this valve, this meter reacted. It just didn't work. And so I... <clears throat> talked to the Commodore and I said, I'm going to have to relieve this guy. He was handpicked by Rickover. And uh, Commodore said, well, I'm not going to touch that. You talk to the Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so I talked to the Admiral. Well, I think you better call Admiral Rickover. So I called him. 
And he listened very calmly, very calmly. I said, Admiral, I know you handpicked this fellow, uh, and he does have terrific credentials, but within the environment we've got going on here, it's just not working out. And I had lots of specific examples, which I won't go into. And so I think, in spite of the fact that you handpicked him, we have to relieve him, and I need a new engineer. It was quiet. He said, if you think the same way in the morning, after you sleep on it, call me again. And he hung up. Next morning, I called him and went through the same litany. Recover said, I trust you. 48 hours, that guy was gone. Hmm. And a new one came. But I had trusted Admiral Rickover to provide me with the best naval engineer and didn't work out. And yet he, I mean, I couldn't have previously done that. You know, I couldn't have said, he didn't wear his uniform right. I had to come up with specific stuff. But my trust in Emma Rickover was shaken for a while. But when I called him and told him, here's a problem, and I think we have to solve it, he was on it. I was just. I mean, I, 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 I trusted you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he understood the environment. Yeah. There's funny stories about Admiral Rickover's desire for short conversations. You know, he had, he had representatives in every shipyard. And he would have a staff meeting by phone every Monday. And so he would go around to these eight different shipyards and. After he hung up, he talked to his secretary. He said, you know, this is taking up too much time because these guys, all they want to do is tell me the weather or what they've done wonderful. He said, you tell them that next week, all they are to say is yes or no. Yes, they have a problem for Rick over to here or no. So the next few meetings, a lot of no, 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 no. So the meeting was over in about three minutes. Rick over said, you know, this meeting is still too long. <laughs> I want them to say Y or N. And for yes or no. And you know, so somebody said Y. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they had a problem. They want they had a ship problem or a shipyard problem or a reactor problem or a question that needed Admiral Rickover's attention. But there was no BS. There was no how's the weather? You know, yeah. how's your wife or. Uh, but it could be charming, too. I, when I was working in Washington, we'd go to cocktail parties, and we'd come home, and Ellen would say, what are you worried about that guy for? He's really charming. <laughs> the guys. And it was amazing, because he could do that. He charmed Congress, obviously. And um, it, it was interesting, his take on humanity. And he really did care about us. Um, yeah, he did. That that's one thing I will say that trickles all the way across. I call it frame fifty-seven. I'm a six thirty-seven class guy. It's frame fifty-two. Want to know some of this? Yeah, yeah. But I rode three diesel boats, five sixty-three class, Tang, Gudge, and Trout, all San Diego boats. Okay. There was a real sense of a single crew on the diesel boat. There was no. <clears throat> No, def- 
definitive line. Okay. But on the nukes, we had, and I'm going to use the lingo, it was the nukes and the Ford pukes. It, there was a division there at frame 57, just forward of the reactor compartment, where there was a division between the Ford pukes and the nukes. Mm-hmm. That was as far as the job was concerned. Their everyday working environment. The nukes were after frame 57. The Sonarman ESM navigators, they were all forward of frame 57. But when you got into cruise mass or the birthing compartment, it was one crew. There was no definity, you know, definition there though. But I, I always thought it was interesting when I made the transition from the diesel boats to the nuke boats, that that line was there, uh, separating the work environment, but not not the individual relationships. Hmm. It was pretty interesting. Well, there, in the 60s and 70s, there were real reasons for that. One is proficiency pay. The nuclear trained engineers were paid more uh, to retain them. <clears throat> So that was issue one. Issue two was that there always had to be a lot of nuclear-trained people around the reactor, even when it was shut down. And so the watch-standing requirements, the engineers got home less than the sonarmen or the navigators. Um, and so that that, that division built up. There was, there was a difference. Engineers were paid differently. Uh, they they had to work under more stringent requirements. They, quote, couldn't have as much fun. There was no joking around in the watch station. Um, and I was very aware of that as exec on a new construction essay. And then I went to Seawolf <clears throat> because Seawolf had a group like Pete had, except I had 20 of them there all the time. I said, I know I had the nukes and the nose coners, but I got the specialty guys. I said, we got to get – and I don't know why I did this. <laughs> yeah. But we have a thing called a field day on well, all Navy ships, but on submarines. Once a week, usually on Friday, you turn on all the lights and you clean the ship. You do a deep cleaning. Get the bedding changed. And, oh, I don't know why, but the first one we did is Seawolf. I demanded that the officers and the chiefs participate in it with rags and water and cleaning materials and that everybody go to a space different than their own. So we had the nukes cleaning in sonar. We had the sonarmen cleaning in the engine room. And the torpedo men were in the galley. And I, I don't know what was – it was crazy. Never heard of it. I don't know why I did that. But it made such a difference. It, it just never um, – I I don't know what possessed me to do that. But the first time we had a reactor inspection, the inspector said, this is the cleanest submarine we've ever been on. And we were 22 years old at that point. And, um, things, things build up over time. There was, there's no denying it. A question I have about the Seawolf is, I mean, we, it's it's a legendary sub. I mean, we've heard about it. I mean, it's been in movies and, and like, right? It's a good name. It yeah. is a good name. <laughs> what What is the story 
of Seawolf that makes it such a legendary boat? Well, to begin with, there's been many Seawolves. There was a World War One Seawolf. There's a World War Two Seawolf. There's a Cold War Seawolf, and there's a current Seawolf. Hmm. So it's it's one of the names that is carried on in submarine history um, for a long time. Um, and Seawolf was built with a sodium plant, which is different. All of our all of our submarines now are have pressurized water reactors. Seawolf was built with a sodium coolant reactor. I asked Admiral Rickover why. Well, it turns out sodium or liquid metal is more neutronically efficient than water. And so he said, we did not know which was going to work. Nautilus with water, Seawolf with sodium. Um, but as everybody who's taken high school chemistry knows, if you drop a drop of sodium into water, you get a violent reaction. And so uh, although the reactor worked fine, <coughs> the adjacent problems with sodium so the decommissioned Seawolf took the sodium out and put a water plant into it. Uh, so because it was one of a kind, it had a lot of mechanical problems. Mm. And during its initial years, it did not have a good reputation on the waterfront. Couldn't get underway on time, didn't make deployments. Um, and... So when the idea came up to cut a submarine in half to put some extra stuff in it, the people in the Atlantic said, we can get rid of Seawolf that way. We're going to send it to the Pacific. <laughs> and that's as much as I can say as to how that happened. Okay. Um, but <clears throat> because it was dedicated to, for research and development and advanced systems, with security clearances, it attracted a lot of high-quality people. And consequently, the performance of the ship um, really was exemplary. I mean, every one of the people on it felt that sense of responsibility. And um, well, just last week, I've got, a, I've got a request from one of the sailors who was shipmates with another sailor who died. He's going to be buried in Miramar. They want me to give a talk at the graveside. I, uh, where do you get the... Where do family... I mean, I've never met the survivors. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, a sailor in Maine has called me and asked if I would do his eulogy. Uh, I said... I said, I, I said you know, I, I'm going to find an admiral in Maine to do that because... That makes more sense. Although I'd be, I'm honored to be asked, and I certainly could do it. But I think if, if you and your family would be happier, Admiral So and So took that oar. So uh, I don't. I mean, I did do some things differently. Like, like our house was always open to everybody. Um, I can remember one submarine birthday ball afterwards, crew member came up and said, you know, I think we ought to go to your house and do bacon and eggs at 2 in the morning. 
I looked at them and I said, what? He said, yeah, we'll pick them up. We'll see you at your house. So they were there at four. I went to bed. Ellen was still down there doing bacon and eggs with the crew. I got up in the morning. I came down. house was a shambles. It was, But there on the living room floor was one of my sailors curled around my dog, sleeping on my living room floor. His name was Wally Wilhelm. I'll never forget him. But it, it was that uh, sense of belonging to each other that uh, I think I was fortunate and I was older than most of my contemporaries because I had four years of graduate school. So I was older. I was confident in my knowledge about the reactor. And so I, I think... My approach to risk management, if you will, may have been – I had a broader basis to work from. And so I was much more comfortable letting people do things on their own. If somebody comes to me with a problem, every problem has got three ways to solve it. And unless it was going to hazard the ship, I'd let them do it their way. I just – it would build their confidence. Um and if they weren't going to, you know, if I could see that it was a problem for the ship or I wasn't comfortable, I'd certainly step in. But it all, I, I would try and let them do it with their solution because in most cases they knew what was happening. And, and Ellen was a big part of it. The, the crew's family were comfortable with her. Um and she really took care of them while we were gone. There was no submarine support activity in San Francisco. So it's not like being in San Diego where you've got a, a squadron and a flotilla or a, um, or the Navy base. There wasn't any of that. So it was our house. It was the uh, deal. And well, you, no also had, wow. you also had the horse and cow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> you, look, and that's probably how you ended up with the party at your house. Okay, yeah. it's the story about the horse and cow. But let me tell you where this hit me very much. Mm-hmm. Again, in preparation, we were already in talks of ha- doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. And my grandson, who lives in the Czech Republic, was coming over. And he'd heard about submarines, and he wanted to go on board a submarine. All right, well... With the things going on in the world right now, it was not a good time to go on a sub-base and ask things. I mean, there, things were tight. I talked to Charlie, and he said, well, why don't you just take it, take him down to the Dolphin? Never dawned on me. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, yeah, all right. And it, you were kind enough to set me up with tickets and stuff, so to take them down there on a, you know, for a tour of the Dolphin. We set it up. I came over to Charlie's house. We got the passes all straightened out, and he hands me this piece of paper I'm about to share with the group here. This picture <laughs> is of the bar called the Horse and Cow. I see if you get a close up there. I'll see if I can get it right there. There we go. Okay. Get the right angle. All right. See the dolphin up there at the top? A G S S five five five. That's yeah. the boat that's down at the 
Maritime Museum. So I said to myself, I said, where is this picture taken? Well, this, I recognize the spot. It's the horse and cow. It's a submariner's bar up in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. He can give you the specifics. All right. I, I don't know. Is this I was, in Vallejo? It wasn't Vallejo. It started at Hunter's Point. Oh, okay. Uh, and, they, and they moved it to Vallejo, and then actually it came down here for a while. Then it moved to Bremerton, and, but it lives on. There's now one in Guam. There, there, so, All right. Let me finish the story, though. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> I got I to gotta bring this around. So the horse and cow, mm-hmm. submarines are subsurface, right. correct? Yeah. We're talking about seawolf. Look what subsurface on the horse and cow wall. Look at that. Below all the others <laughs> is seawolf. Perfect. That picture meant so much. When I got into the car and I saw that, I says, this speaks volumes. <laughs> you know, that one picture just speaks volumes. So, yeah. I'm going to put that right up there with my dolphins. There you go. <laughs> all right. So, By the way... Those dolphins. I never qualified on submarines. Huh. All right. I didn't feel as a writer that I was a part of that echelon. Because what's the average time for somebody qualifying on submarines? About a year, right? Now. At least a year. But there was one boat, a diesel boat that insisted that something be done in my case, even though I wasn't qualified. I wasn't going to wear dolphins. But there's a ceremony that you go through to get your dolphins. It's a big thing. When you get your dolphins, it's not only an official command thing where you get the designator to wear the dolphins, all right? But there's a party that's associated with it. Mm. So I have this mug that's about this tall and about this big around, that you take into a bar, and everybody pours a little bit of their drink into that Ooh. mug. <laughs> and then they drop the dolphins in. Mm-hmm. All right? And then you, as the recipient of the dolphins, have to drink from that mug mm-hmm. and come up with the dolphins in your teeth. Oh, man. All right? So they had to subject me to that. But in my case, not dolphins. There's another insignia that's under the current. It's not an officially recognized decoration. It's called DBF pins, diesel boats forever. Oh. All right. And that's what they put in the bottom of my book, was I had to come up with the DBF pins in my teeth. So, yeah. And there's a reason I don't drink anymore, Charlie, because <laughs> I did far too much of the horse and cow. Well, the first diesel boat I was on is the reason I stayed in submarines, really. I mean, I, I was given the opportunity between semesters at college that you could – I was part of NROTC. And if you went to sub-school for a week, you could get some extra credit. So I, I was down in Connecticut, and I said, well, I know. It's summertime. I'll sure I'll do that. So on the last day of that week, on Friday, you go down, and you actually get to a submarine the beginning year of school class book. So I went down to this diesel submarine and topside watch calls the duty officer up and said, duty officer said, 
Are you the guy to go through the ship today? Yes, sir. Okay, we're going to start in the torpedo room. So we went down, and I was just amazed at all pipes and valves and these little places where people slept. And so we're very detailed going through the gauges. And pretty soon it's about 11.15, and I don't know what space room, the exec shows up. Ex- exec officer says, McVeigh, <coughs> um, said, on this ship, we always have an officer eat with a crew to make sure the food is okay. We want the crew to know that the food is all right. So today I'd like you to represent the officers and eat with the crew. Can you do that? And I said, yes, sir, I'd be happy to. So they led me to the crew's mess, which is a room. It's hard to describe how small it is. And anyway, the only seat left, and they feed the crew in shifts of three. So, you know, maybe there's... 20 people at a time. The only seat left was up against the hull. And so I had to squeeze past a whole bunch of guys. And a guy who was going to sit next to me, I, I, a huge guy, his shoulders about twice as wide as mine. I looked over his shoulders. His dungarees were rolled up. His arms were all greasy like he'd just repaired a motorcycle. And he smelled like a goat. And I wedged myself in against the hull. So I'm sitting like this and... They feed family style. And so first thing comes out of the bowl of mashed potatoes. And this animal next to me, he says, you want some potatoes? Yes, sir. So he digs one of those dirty hands in there. And And next to these green beans, other hand, filthy. And then as meat came out, it was kind of laying in this shimmering green gravy. He said, you want some? Yes, sir. I put that – about the time I lift up my fork, the entire crew is now assembled in this space, <laughs> and they all start clapping. And I thought to myself, if this crew can pull something like that off, these are the kind of people I want to be with. Yeah, right on. It, it was so well orchestrated. Nobody cracked a smile. It was all serious until they knew that they had fished me in 100 percent. Uh, but stuff like went on like that. Um, I mean, you had to try hard to amuse yourself at 400 feet for 60 days. So, Yeah, there were games we played all, all the time. I mean, minor things. The new guys, we'd have him go on a search for relative, get us, get, give me a jar of relative bearing grease. You know, and he'd be gone for hours looking around the boat for relative bearing grease. You know, so, uh, yeah, didn't exist. Just, Bearing grease, yes, but relative bearing is a navigation thing. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They didn't know the difference. Yeah. Well, th- this was interesting because it goes back to what we were talking about at lunch. You know, where do we find these people, you know, that can serve, that have the character, that have the ability to be trustworthy and can extend trust to others? Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, recruitment in the military and how it's a, it's a different world now. Things have changed, but the military offers so much value to people, not only as a career path, but this camaraderie, this experience that these men and women go through is is unique compared to any other that, career in the, that, on Earth. And I want to capitalize on that. What he just said is a first. You brought it up in an email. The first female you just met with. Yeah. 
Uh, the first ladies are on submarines uh, and doing very well, extremely um, confident, capable, and respected. And we can talk about that later, but we'll go back to the basic question of where do we get people that want to give up sunlight and fresh air and, <clears throat> and do this in a very um, different environment. And so, you know, we take people off the beaches of La Jolla and the cornfields of Nebraska and the streets of Harlem, train them, and then we throw them in a tube and say, make it run for 90 days with no help and no communications. And, uh, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about it, and that's why the question comes up. And, uh, you know, the question still remains, how did I go from growing up in a little commuter town in New Jersey to being trusted with 6,000 tons of submarine and nuclear reactor, nuclear weapons, 130 guys, and go away for 90 days, and we're not going to... And we're going to trust you. How old were you? Um, I, How old were you when you were in that position, of being in charge of that? Well, it's um, a lot. You know, in, in the days of the seventies, we're dealing with recoil from Vietnam. Affirmative action was in place. Admiral Zumwalt was the CNO, and it created a lot of chaos. And uh, um, and I will say that. Many of the folks came to us in the Navy in those days, and even later, and in the previous wars, the parents said, you know, you're not making it as a civilian, you know, and you won't go to college. Why don't you try the military? They'll educate you somehow. Or some say, son, I'm going to send you to jail unless you go to the Navy. And, but people learned about their self-worth. They learned the value of being part of a team. They learned what a full day's work meant. Um, they meant they learned respect for themselves and for people appointed over them. And they just were comfortable and they blossomed in that more. So many of the sailors and, and officers have come back and said, you know, if it hadn't been for Seawolf, I, I don't think I would have been a success in life. I wouldn't have been a successful father. I wouldn't have been a successful husband. I wouldn't have been a successful. And I got sailors that are craftsmen, doctors, bankers, lawyers, artisans, policemen, firemen, across the spectrum. And my greatest thanks about being in the Navy is that those folks on Seawolf are all good citizens of this world. And how we... How we did that, we did it together. But people just they either blossomed or they crumbled, and they would back out on their own yeah. admission. We did but, have pe we did have people leave. Yeah, we did. And but so many people, uh, this master chief that I'm a very good friend with, was on a cruiser, hated it, and thankfully his division officer said, "Why don't you go to sub school?" And he did. And he got a first submarine. And he said, these people care about me. And it was that issue of caring about and not only your, how do you feel, but are you getting ahead? Are you going where you want to go? Are you getting feedback? And 
when I counseled people about when they wanted to leave the Navy and I respected that decision, I'd say, look, I, in my view, there are three kinds of pay. There's financial pay, there's emotional pay, and there's intellectual pay. And you've got to keep all three of them in balance. You know, emotionally, are you happy with what you're doing? Intellectually, are you learning something? And financially, are you making along okay? But keep them in balance because some people jump on this financial bandwagon and they're miserable. After, and I was miserable when I first worked for money rather than for mission. And you got to be learning stuff and you got to like the people that you're with. And um, Well, I'm telling you, every time I sit with you, Charlie, I'll do something new. <laughs> that little discussion right there. You hit a huge nail on the head. The three things, you know, the emotional, the financial, and the life. You know, it. I never thought of my life in that respect, but mm-hmm. oh, one of the things. One, one of the things I address in the book is that I, I, uh, fortunately, because of my mother, I liked people, but. I, before I went to bed at sea, I would walk the ship and then sit in the engine room lower level. And the crew got to know that I was there. And they would come and and talk. And there was, there was a ground rule. We can't talk about your equipment or your chief. I said, I, I don't care about your gauge or your pump. I know you'll fix it. So I just want to know how you're doing about your family. And so I got to a, a routine on Seawolf that I would sit in the lower level engine room for uh, this length of time, an hour and a half maybe. And when that showed up in my patrol reports, Admiral said, what are, you, what are you doing, McVeigh? You ought to be in the attack center to fight the submarine. And, and my answer was that, you know, my crews are trained to know the first seven things to do in an emergency. And I'll be there by then. But I'm much more, I think, valuable learning where this young man's psyche is and not where his technical expertise is. And so I got, I did get criticized, but I didn't, I didn't change. Because yeah. um, it, was, it was different. But because I was older and, uh, my approach to risk management was probably more um, I guess I said it was it was broader based because I had a broader base to work from but uh, crew members and officers have been effusive in their uh, time about seawolf at uh, it's hard to explain. It was just uh, it's like being on Apollo 11. Uh, we did things that uh, had never been done. Um, it wasn't because we were given vast assets. It's because we did it together. Yeah. I think that you touched on a point where the, the, your crew members, they believed that you cared. And it's something that you don't get in a lot of other careers. Oh, it, and that's because of the confined environment. I mean, that's well, because... It's, it's, 
But you, you've got it all for this entire contained environment. Right. I mean, you do. They can't get away from you. I, you know, I, I, we talk about training. When I was, a, I ran two companies in the civilian world, and training was always an issue. I said, "Boy, in a creative submarine, I had them seven twenty-four, mm-hmm. you know, and and they didn't get they didn't get to go home and get deprogrammed. And so, in some cases, it was a a blessing, but." Um, one of my favorite I, stories is the one that when you came back from a patrol, you just got the reactor shut down. You were at home. You were exhausted. You went to bed. The phone rang. Alan answers the phone, <laughs> and it was Rick over. And and she hands the phone to him, and he says, what was it? He says, I don't think you have my reactor the first and foremost of your mind right now. <laughs> I, one of Admiral Rickover's traits was to keep you off balance. Mm-hmm. And he wanted you to tell the truth when you're off balance. When you're tired and you're scared and you're off balance, tell the truth, particularly about his reactor. So we had, we just come back from 90 days at sea, and um, I was really unconscious. And the phone rang. It's like 5 in the morning in Mare Island, San Francisco. So it's 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning in uh, Washington. Ellen gives me the elbow and said, they want you on the phone. And I said, well, who's that? It's Admiral Rickover. I said, no. Uh, <laughs> I said, no, Admiral Rickover wants to talk to you. So I picked up the phone and got my feet on the deck and said, yes, sir, how can I help? He said, McVeigh, what are you doing? I'm sleeping next to my wife, Admiral. He said, well, I don't think you have the safety of my reactor uppermost in your mind at this very moment. And I I said, Admiral, I've been sleeping next to your reactor for the last 90 days, right next to it. And it's shut down. It's cooled down. I was there yesterday, and I'll be down there in another eight hours. No, I don't think you have the safety of my reactor uppermost in your mind. So I'm going to call your boss and tell him to fire you. Click. Well, I, this is an infamous I th- call. I, I think we were scheduled to take the kids to Fisherman's Wharf and drink beer and eat crab, or, but instead I'm moping around the house. And next morning, Monday morning, I'm down in the engine room. The exec comes to get me and said, uh, "Captain, Comsub Pack wants to talk to you, senior submarine guy in the Pacific." Okay, I'll go up there and yes, sir, Admiral. Sigma Vane said, You guys did a wonderful job. I don't know how the hell you did it, but you did a wonderful job. I said, You've been talking to Admiral Rickover? He said, Oh, you forget Admiral Rickover. He's just trying to remind you that his reactor is important and you better give it the priority that it needs. But what you guys did was wonderful. So congratulations. Well, you were but, keeping that reactor nice and safe for 90 straight nights, right? As you cuddled up next to it. Yeah. <laughs> it was... Um, hey, we're, we're already at like an hour and 23 minutes. All right. Again, I don't want to go too much longer, but what other big things are we missing here, you know, Pete? I think we've covered the Paramount, but there is... The one story that I love dearly because I, I was involved in it. And again, it shows 
the efforts that people go through, and this one's got an amusing end to it. Okay. And, and he's the clever guy that found the amusing end to it. Okay. And you were back going through something with Rick over, but there were several of you captains there at the time. And here, here's the situation. There was a submarine down in, out of Charleston that had a tremendous morale problem. And the CO was trying to find a solution to this morale problem. So uh, he hired some disco dancers. You know the type. Okay. Disco dancers. Uh, okay. <laughs> what, do you, what do you call them? Go-go dancers? Go-go, yeah. They were going to dance on the sail planes of this submarine as it was leaving port. This okay. was This is a first. Strippers. They were strippers. Okay. Let's, let's tell it like a, All right. That's what Rick Oprah would want. Make yeah. it to the point. So <laughs> he was – Charleston's a pretty protected waterway. Yeah. You can probably get in and out without being noticed. Pretty easily. It's not like Pearl, not like San Diego, where all the eyes are on it. Actually, this happened in Port. Huh? This happened in Port Everglades, which is very narrow. Okay. Going out. So he thought he was going to get away with this, all right? But it didn't. It made television, mm-hmm. all right? And of course, it goes up the chain of command, super high. A lot of people up in D.C. get very upset about this. Now, we're talking about a 637-class submarine that had sailplanes, all right? A lot of submarines didn't have sailplanes. Diesel boats didn't have sailplanes, yada, yada, yada. You got called in by a bunch of people. Why don't you finish the story? I didn't know anything about the incident, but it was. It was all over the newspaper. That, um, so I was studying with Admiral Rickover at the time getting ready to go to Seawolf, and his deputy came in and said, McVeigh, you're the senior member in this class. Tomorrow, 9 o'clock, to the Pentagon. He gave me a slip of paper with an office number on it. So I came to work early and then got the shuttle from Crystal City over to Pentagon, looked up this number, it was on the E-ring, and found it finally in a I'm in my dress uniform, which is very unusual. Rick Over didn't let us wear uniforms. Um, so I'm in my dress blues, and I found this office, and a little placard says Oppo 2, which is a senior submarine admiral on the staff of the chief of naval operation. Way up there. Mm, okay. So I go in there, I, and a room, and the EA is there and says, Stand by, Commander. I'll see when they're ready. So I go in there, and there's this Admiral Wilkinson is relieving the current OPPO 2, and he's standing at the desk, and the current OPPO 2 is sitting down, and I come in. And I have no idea what the hell I'm there for. No idea. So this Admiral looks up from his desk and said, Commander, would you ever let a new dancer on your fairwater planes. I looked back at him and said, no, sir, Seawolf has bow planes, <laughs> which 
Admiral Wilkinson started to laugh and laugh, but this admiral sitting down was very, very upset. He said, do you know what's happened? I said, no, sir. He said, well, this submarine coming out of Fort Lauderdale had a nude dancer on the Fairwater Plains, captured by every newspaper article. <laughs> said, now, normally we might be able to tolerate such hijinks, but in this case, just last week, we're over at Congress arguing for more money for the next class of submarine. And one of our key points was that we have the most proficient, steely-eyed killers of the deep as our commanding officers. And then this jackass pulls this trick, sets us back about a year with Congress. Do you understand? Don't let them either on your bow planes or your fair water planes. So, yes, sir, I understand. <laughs> so, this is great. I mean, I, I really enjoyed all the, our conversations, and I'm not sure we can go for you know hours and hours. But uh, yeah, I, I could for sure. Um, Charlie, I, that book right there made a huge impression upon me. <coughs> Excuse me. Never seen it before. I, I want you to share that. Oh, just I don't know if it or not. But... I'm going to tell book. the audience, right, before he gets into this, there is one picture. I, of the nine years I spent in the Navy, I have one picture of me on a submarine. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's all. Just one. Now, go ahead. Tell them about this book. When I left Seawolf, the, the, the crew was kind enough to give me this, which has pictures in it of almost every crew member that sailed with me. Well, that's not a good picture, but try this one. And so these are black and white, mostly, pictures of the guys that did this stuff in the 70s and 80s and on into today. And they look like, they all look like the guys you'd see in your high school graduation picture. About the same um, age, too. That's what gets my attention. <laughs> They're young-looking people. It's the sense that we give to people that they are belonging and they are contributing that makes us keep them. And, uh, so this is a book of every person. And I, I can swear to this, when I went through that, I spotted five faces that I know. People that I know that rode Seawolf under your command, and their pictures are there. And that is phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's like I just, a time capsule. It is. You know, it it's is. got it all right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a special gift for you to remember the, that, that you know, key part of your life and of your career. Well, the whole, you know, I've often thought about it. how did I get to Seawolf? I mean, what to go from the newest submarine to the oldest. But my time on Seawolf was a gift and a blessing. And I, I am sure I was tired when I came off. I was exhausted. Um, but what these folks did under some of the most terrible living conditions and operational conditions uh, it's hard to convey it is uh, it's difficult it's a difficult thing to get across to people is that <sighs> well i i've talked to committee officers recently here what's your biggest problem captain he said cell phones so what <laughs> 
He said, the problem is that our sailors today are so attached to their cell phones, instant communication with their wives, their kids, sports, news, Amazon. But when I close the hatches, their cell phones are useless. And they really do go through withdrawal. And it's good or bad, it's something we have to deal with because, yes, we have better communications. And in my day, we were allowed one incoming 25-word-per-month message. Yeah. Now they, they have emails. Um, so the families can write emails anytime. The crew members can write emails on terminals throughout the submarine. They don't get transmitted until the captain thinks it's safe to do that. So when he's in an operational situation where it's quiet and he's comfortable, uh, he will transmit and receive a couple of days' worth of emails. So they're never more than, let me say, 72 hours out of communication with their families, which is so much different than we – but it's still a very, very – strange sociological existence. And if we didn't have trust in each other, and if you don't have a sense of humor, you're in trouble. Yeah. So. Sense of humor is important. <laughs> there were all sorts of things that would take place on the boats that you needed a sense of humor for. Well, I think a lot of them are documented here in your book, right? Deep down, Captain Charles R. McVeigh, U.S. Navy, retired Ph.D. That's, that's the other. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, the Navy was so good to me. I, uh, I mean, the story I got in the Navy is we don't need to take up Navy next time. But I mean, I, I went to Dartmouth for four years, then the Navy selected me to go to graduate school, so I was four years at Cornell, and. Uh, that education, I never could have done it on my own. My parents, doubtful, could have afforded it. And sure, I owe the Navy 13 years when I came out of that. But I just loved going to sea. The first destroyer I went on was not air-conditioned. We went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Hmm? You were a skimmer? Oh, yeah. I was a, I was communicator on the USS Forrest Sherman for a I year. I never knew that. <clears throat> I'm in mixed company. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> you have to give me a hall pass. <laughs> the only surface ship I've sailed in in the Navy was a landing craft. That was it. No surface ships. Sorry. I'm a boat sailor. Okay, well, let me tell you, if we got three minutes. Of course. This is a lesson I learned from a yeah. chief on the destroyer I served on. I, I was a communicator, and soon after we got married, I'm leaving for the Mediterranean. And... Um, I had had them um, 20 to 24 watch, so I'm in bed. It's 2 in the morning, and I smell coffee. And I roll over, and somebody turned the light on above the basin, a little dim light. And here's the chief radioman, Chief Thomas Healy. He wears dark Navy glasses. He's got a mustache, and he can just peer over my bunk. I'm in the upper bunk. I said, Chief, what's wrong? What's going on? He said, Mr. Mack, do you know you got a broken piece of equipment? Yeah, I know the URC-32 is out of commission. He said, 
do you know you have people working on that to get it working for you? I said, what, at 2 o'clock in the morning? No, I didn't know that. He said, well, well, those sailors probably could use a cup of coffee right now, and here's yours. He sets it on a steaming cup of coffee on my chest, turns around, turns out the lights and leaves. So I'm on this destroyer rolling around with this coffee on my chest. <laughs> but that was a lesson I have never forgotten. These guys are working their buns off for you. You better be taking care of them. So I got up. I went to the galley, and I got cups of coffee and stayed up with them the rest of the night while they worked on this transmitter to get it ready to go. Yeah. But the lesson was there that if you have people breaking their buns to do something for you, you should make it as comfortable for them as you can. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's a good lesson. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's a little bit like what we were talking about lunch uh, at lunch about you know the the loading um, of all the uh, oh, what yeah. you call that? stores stores loading stores loading stores. So yeah. Um. Thank you. Thank you for joining You're us. Welcome. I mean, um, I want to be respectful of your time. We've gone a little longer than I thought we would. But uh, I had a great time. How about you? I warned you. I said, I, every time I sit down with Charlie, it, it lasts for hours. Hours. Yeah. Hours and hours. But well, you know, that's, if you're still here and still listening, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. the greatest compliment. Uh, yeah. So uh, thank you for asking me because I, uh, I love to, to share the stories about these folks and um, – and our military, I, I still think that the educational opportunities are terrific. Whether you're an officer, uh, one more story. It doesn't have anything to do with a submarine, but a college classmate of mine called me three years ago. He said, Charlie, my, my grandson is graduating from college, and he's down there waiting tables. He's not doing anything. He's adrift. Can you do something for him, with him? Well, this, this fellow lived in Oregon, and he had his daughter, and now grandson lived down here. So I, he was waiting tables at 94th Aero Squadron. And so I went out, met him, and I said, look, Zach, next week we're going on a longer lunch. So the next week I picked him up, put him in the car, and we drove through every military installation in San Diego County. Marine Corps, Surface Navy, Aviation Navy, Submarine Force. I didn't say a word to him. I mean, he would ask me, what is that? You know, what kind of a ship is that? Or what kind of an airplane? Or, or what's a, an aircraft carrier is big. But I, there was no pressure, nothing. So we had a – and I think we had lunch at McDonald's down on 32nd Street. So I let him off, took him back to his car – about three weeks later, he called and he said, I said, Mr. McVean, he said, can, can you get me in the Navy? I, I said, sure, but what, what, what's transpired? He said, well, the thing I noticed, every place we went, the people that were walking around on those bases were going somewhere. They weren't on the street corner smoking and joking. They all were, they all had a mission. They knew where they were going. They had something to get done. I, I, I want some of that. So I said, sure. 
So I took him to the Marine recruiter. Well, the Navy recruiter happened to be Marine Corps gunny sergeant. And we kicked the stuff around. The sergeant's filling in paperwork for him to be a sailor. I said, gunny sergeant, this fellow's got a college degree. Why can't he go to OCS? Sergeant looked through his books and said, yeah, well, he can. I said, okay, let's do that application. So we applied for OCS. Six weeks later, got rejected. This fellow, young man, called me dejected. He said, what? Uh, my, everything I did looked okay. I and mean, you looked at it and seemed to be okay. Well, how come? I said, Zach, they're just testing you. They want to find out if you're really serious about one. Submit it again. Well, that works. So he got picked up for OCS. When he was in OCS, he decided to fly. So then he got picked up. He's in Pensacola. One of his flight instructors is a lady whom he eventually marries. And he's now with an operational squadron in Oceana in Norfolk. And his parents are convinced I turned their dirtbag kid into a human. You know, <laughs> it's like, I don't know how you did that, Captain. I didn't do it. It's the environment. When you see people that are motivated and have a direction in their life, it's something that you want. And when you find out you've got to contribute, you can't just be a ride along. Bring This guy now, I, I met him last summer. He was home on, he stands straighter, wears his uniform with pride, and... Uh, his parents are just so happy. I just uh, so I'm. Well, it's given his life meaning, mission, purpose. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people in this world that are sort of adrift, and uh, to find a home where they're cared for, um, and and they have a direction, their life has meaning, a trajectory. I mean, that's tremendous, huge. First sailor I ever met on this destroyer, I reported the board, walked up to the wardroom. A steward pours me a cup of coffee, and his name was Hodge. I'll never forget him. He'd been a prisoner of war. He's on a ship that got torpedoed World War II. I said, Hodge, why, why are you in the Navy? He said, Mr. Mack, first I was in the Navy, they gave me two pair of shoes and three meals. I knew I was staying. <laughs> and so uh, yeah. it's, it's a terrific spectrum of people that you run into. That uh, I just generated a lot of respect for, yeah. whether they came from the bayou in Mississippi or woods in Maine. They, uh, Come from all over this damn country. They do. Every nook and cranny they come in. Yeah. Well, Captain, thank you very much. I well, really thank you. appreciated this. Well, thank Pete, you. Thank you for you know for bringing Charlie here. This. We've been talking about it forever, it seems. Um, but it's just wonderful to finally meet you and learn your stories. And I mean that that photo album is absolutely amazing. Um, so again, thanks so much. You're entirely welcome. Don't Happy forget New the Year. horse and cow. Don't forget the horse. <laughs> okay, friends. We'll see you later, and uh, have a great day. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor. Subscribe and then share it with a friend, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. 
go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.